me forget to record. So this morning we're going to be going over the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of repentance. Now, I'm going to cover what it is, what it means, and how does these things, how do these things practically apply to my life? Have you ever wondered if there's a practical application to the doctrine of justification? Now, the reason why I didn't print out a bunch of notes is because my personal teaching philosophy is if I can't drive one or three points home that you can remember without notes, then I probably haven't really done my job as a teacher. Um, because if it doesn't matter today, I mean, if it doesn't matter in, in a month, then you know, when you're a month down the road thinking about it, then I probably didn't really drive the point home. Now, you've probably heard this before. Reformed Christians affirm without hesitation that the doctrine of justification is the article of faith by which the church stands or falls. Most of you recognize that term as something that Martin Luther said, but it was actually first penned by a theologian by the name of J.H. Alstead that lived in the late 1500s to the mid-1600s. The reason why the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, on the count of Christ alone, is so important is because it's so closely tied to the gospel. Indeed, I would say it is the centerpiece of the gospel and the saving work of Jesus Christ. Within that sentence, you see three of the five solas alone, by the way, or three of the five solas. If we do not understand how it is that we as sinners are declared right before a holy God, which is what it means to be justified, we may not only misunderstand the gospel, and therefore risk standing before God on the day of judgment, expecting that our own righteousness will be sufficient or into some degree deficient, or we may expect that even the slightest degree of our own works contribute. Both of those are equally dangerous perspectives. Now, if you recall, a few weeks ago, I attempted to use a puzzle analogy where I printed out a couple of different pictures, and they were put together using a puzzle To be perfectly honest, I kind of dropped the ball on portraying that analogy correctly. So if you'll indulge me, I want to take a minute and go over and use the puzzle analogy again and explain it just using your imagination. When it comes to how we look at Scripture, we as Reformed Christians have adopted the principle of sola scriptura. Now, if you remember, sola scriptura is the Latin phrase that means Scripture alone. We don't add anything to it. We don't take anything away from it, and indeed we interpret it the way that God has intended for us. The principle also applies of sola scriptura is that we let scripture interpret scripture. So what does that mean? So I want to use a bit of an imagination, or your imagination if you will. Imagine, many of you have probably done a puzzle of like a thousand piece puzzle. Imagine if I were trying to do, uh, put together a puzzle of a yellow tulip. Now for you theology nerds, this is a bit on the nose, but I want you to think about this. We use a system when it comes to putting together a puzzle, okay? That system that we may use is that if we, uh, we have yellow pieces within all of those pieces, we group those pieces together, we group the background together and the border pieces together. Imagine, if you will, that scripture, each scripture, each time it speaks of a particular subject, that is a puzzle piece, if you will, okay? When we put those together, there's really only one of two ways we can put them together, correctly or incorrectly, Allow, or uh, excuse me, using the principle of sola scriptura, we put those pieces together where the Bible clearly demonstrates they are supposed to go. And when we do so, 
we start to see the picture that the author has intended. That is sound doctrine. That is sound theology. One so inclined could approach those scriptures using their own logic and their own reason and do it in such a way where they might take those yellow pieces and they put them together in such a way that they don't really go together. They kind of overlap. They might be missing. And he could, using his own reason and logic, create a picture of maybe a yellow daisy. Something altogether different. It would look kind of like a mosaic or a Monet, if you will. And, and if you look at that puzzle put together, it's going to be missing pieces. Those pieces don't go where they're actually supposed to go. But it still creates a picture. And you use Scripture to do it. In my opinion, that is a decent way to look at the difference between true and false doctrine. Is the way we put Scripture together. Okay? When we approach Scripture... John Calvin said it best, we are to abandon our logic and reason and adopt God's logic and reason. That is the fundamental difference between how we come to true and false doctrine. Now, where we're at in the Ordo Salutis, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I went over the Ordo Salutis and what it encompassed and did kind of a broad view of it, covering predestined and the election last week. Now, we're going to skip over calling, regeneration, faith, and repentance. And go right into just, or excuse me, uh, these three, and we're going to go right into justification and repentance. Okay? Now, when we look at these doctrines, we have to remember a fundamental important truth God is not subject to time. Yes, there is a logical order that we see in the Ordo Salutis. Therefore, it is logical, oh, excuse me, because God is not subject to time, it is logical to think that He also doesn't think. In time. When we think of or view a process, we view it in accordance with time. We think of the order salutis from a perspective of time, and we often ask the question, well, which comes first, regeneration or justification? And really, it kind of comes down to which came first, the chicken or the egg. There is a logical procession, but we're not really going to go into that right now. We just must remember that God doesn't think or view things the same way that we do. Now, justification, what is it? It's the action of or declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. It comes from the Latin word justificare, which simply means to make right. <clears throat> in order to understand justification properly, it, it can be kind of a daunting doctrine to take on and, and try to figure out what it actually means. So let's keep it simple. We always, I love the logic displayed in the Bible, and, and I kind of adopt, the, or I don't kind of, I do adopt the logic that God gives us. I think God tells us how to look at his doctrines with the very first sentence of his word. In the beginning, God. We always start with God. So let's start with who God is. To start with who God is, we must make a summation of all his attributes. In this sense, those attributes combined are what call, are ultimately what compose or what holiness is composed of. Now, if you go down through theological history and you look at the different definitions of holiness, you're going to find about 50 different definitions. So what I've done is I've combined a few of those definitions from some trusted theologians. I've kind of come up with my own. And I say the, the holiness of God is the infinite passionate zeal for his own morally perfect thinking and behavior fortified by the integrity of his divine nature, 
where he abides with the becomingness to his own infinite excellent excellent excuse me his own infinite excellency delighting in everything agreeable to his character and abhorring everything contrary to it does that help give you a better picture if you're like me you're like well no it's just a fancy definition so i like to use a, a little bit of analogy imagine a blast furnace and like a huge steel mill imagine this just enormous blast furnace now in no way am i saying that god is like a blast furnace but i want you to think about this when we look at a blast furnace we look that it is basically essentially it is a enormous amount of energy and heat and fire contained in a in a an apparatus of sorts if that apparatus is made of material that cannot withstand the heat and energy of that blast furnace of what's in it what's going to happen to it it's going to fall apart it's going to be destroyed now i want to use a, 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 an analogy of who we are in light of this blast furnace imagine if you will a steel worker taking a piece of iron to put it in that blast furnace if that piece of steel is not made to withstand that fire what's going to happen to it it's going to be destroyed I correlate a strong piece of metal, if you will, of humans before the fall. Now, what happened after the fall? We died. We, came, we became corrupted, corruptible. Imagine, if you will, that same metal bar that is now rusted and corroded and flawed and weak. If you were to put it in that blast furnace, in the presence of that blast furnace, what would happen? It would ultimately become destroyed, right? Now, imagine, if you will, that same piece of metal that is corroded, rusted, flawed, weak, permeable, if you will, soaked in flammable materials like gasoline and nitroglycerin and black powder and all those things that you can imagine for an entire lifetime. What were to happen if I were to take that piece of metal out and start to approach that blast furnace with it? You probably couldn't even get very close before something tragic happened, right? Now imagine this. What is that fire made of? Imagine the literal composition being goodness, patience, grace, mercy, love, joy, peace, kindness and generosity, trustworthiness, and self-control. Now also imagine that that fire is composed of justice, wrath, fury, and righteous hatred of everything contrary to its nature. Multiply that by infinity and you'll start to have an understanding of something of the holiness of God. Okay? In order to understand how justification applies here, I also like to use a courtroom analogy because the word justification is a legal term. Okay? In order for us to understand a legal term, let's put it in a legal context. Okay? So here I go painting another picture, but I want you to think about this. <coughs> Imagine... Uh, a courthouse, if you will, so maybe something like what you would see in Washington, D.C., absolutely enormous, intimidating in its structure, made with beautiful stone and marble and just everything carved out perfectly. And within that courthouse, there is a courtroom. And when you go in that courtroom, you can see a place for the judge. Okay, Like I said, just even if you weren't accused of a crime, going in there would be intimidating in and of itself. Okay. And you go in there and you view the judge's bench and, and you see the way that the courtroom is designed. Again, perfect in every way. To use an analogy, I'd like to tell the story of a criminal, okay? Um, 
Imagine a criminal that decides, actually, sorry, let me back up. I didn't complete that analogy. You have the judge's bench, and then I wrote here the law place, the place that the accused is supposed to stand before the judge. Imagine you being in that courtroom in front of this just intimidating, the only way I know to describe it is intimidating structure where the judge sits, prosecuting attorney over here, if you will, okay? Now imagine a criminal that one day, actually just, just imagine a man, maybe even you, okay, that decides one day he's going to break the law. So he goes into uh, a convenience store and he decides he's going to take the cheapest little piece of candy he can find, a 25-cent piece of gum. And he goes and he takes that and the shopkeeper, being suspicious of people, naturally is, is kind of on to him. He's got the cameras going little security guard out front eating his donuts, what have you. And he takes that piece of candy, puts it in his pocket, and the shopkeeper's on to him. And, he's, and he stops him. He alerts the security guard. The security guard busts him, and now he's arrested. He's broken the law. And he's brought before the judge at that law place, and now he stands before the judge. Imagine, if you will, a judge, just a, a man, if you will, on, on that judge's bench. And that judge looks at him and says, you've been caught. You broke the law. You're accused of breaking the law. Furthermore, you really can't deny it because I see everything. I, I literally can see everything that you've done. You broke the law. But I'm a good judge. I'm a patient judge. I'm a merciful judge, and I delight to extend grace. I tell you what, I forgive you. So that criminal goes off free. Meanwhile, the, the man that, that lost that little 25-cent piece of candy, the shop owner's like, okay, uh, thanks, appreciate you, judge, walks away. Now, we see that kind of thing happen all the time, especially in our justice system, so let's elaborate a little further. Now imagine that that criminal, having a lessened fear of the law and a lessened respect for the judge, just slightly, now decides to become emboldened by giving in the baser desires of his flesh and decides to go and rob that shopkeeper at gunpoint. Several hundred dollars he takes. Everything's recorded. The shopkeeper's absolutely traumatized because he's had a gun in his face. Now the community is traumatized because they know that somebody is capable of doing such a thing. The man is caught. It's on tape. He goes and he stands in that law place before the judge. And the judge says, wow, you've really done it now. You broke the law. Pretty serious. Look what you did. You terrified this man. You stole something. You took something that wasn't yours. It's pretty bad stuff. But I tell you what, I am, uh, I'm a judge of grace and a judge of mercy and forgiveness. I believe in those things. So I'm going to forgive you. You're free to go. That criminal would be so emboldened. Wow, thank you, judge. Off he goes. Meanwhile, that shopkeeper and the community are just daunted at the fact that the God, or excuse me, the God, the judge did not uphold justice. Couldn't believe it. Wow. Now, you have to pardon the graphicness of this next part of the analogy, but I want you to think about this because, unfortunately, this kind of thing does happen. Imagine now that criminal so emboldened decides that he's going to prey upon the shopkeeper's daughter and he commits an absolutely heinous crime. He rapes and murders that poor daughter, or shopkeeper's daughter. Again, a terrible analogy, and forgive me for the graphicness of it, but I want you to think about this. He's been caught. Red, he just, he's, he, there's no denying it. Okay, he's even admitted to the crime. He is now arrested and he's brought before the court and he stands in that place before the judge. 
And the judge is like, oh my goodness, you've really done it. How could you possibly have done such a terrible thing? You have traumatized, you, you ended the life of that innocent person. You have traumatized the father, the mother, the entire uh, community with your crime. Now people are fearful for their own lives. Look what you've done. But I tell you what, I'm a judge of mercy. I'm a judge of peace. I believe in grace and I believe in forgiveness. You're free to go. If I were that, that uh, father, that mother, or even just a common citizen, I would be absolutely outraged at the injustice that just occurred. What is wrong with you, judge? You don't uphold the law. You are corrupt. You are evil. So then comes the question. The great Acropolis of the faith found in Exodus 34, verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands... Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Ancient the or theologians of the past refer to this as the Acropolis. If you know anything about the Acropolis, it was a city in ancient Greece that was high up on a hill. It's where the Parthenon exists. It was a fortified city. This is the Acropolis of the faith. How can God be just and forgive you at the same time? How is that possible? He wouldn't be. That's why when I always hear people that object to the faith, especially the, the atheists or non-believers, they say, well, why can't God just forgive people? Because that would make him evil. That would make him corrupt. So how in the world does he do it? Justification means that we as sinners are declared legally innocent before a holy God. And we obtain that by faith alone. So how do we do it? Now, we need to be clear if we are not clear about this vital doctrine, we can have no assurance whatsoever of our salvation. We can have no foundation for living the Christian life. And indeed, we really have no gospel. Now, put the holy God in that judge's seat. Imagine you just having stolen that little piece of gun, uh, piece of gum. Do you think you could even approach the courtroom if you knew what was actually in that courtroom? Do you think that maybe, let's say you actually knew of your sin, but, oh, but I've also done these good, th good things as though you were that rotten piece of metal soaked in, in flammable materials and, and gathering jewels and precious jewels and you would present yourself. But look what else I've done. I've done these good things. Do you think that would actually work? Or would God's justice seek you out and ultimately destroy you? That's the difference. You are now standing in that law place before God. How can he justify you? How can he just forgive you? Paul answers this question. Only someone that is truly innocent, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, so as not to be in the state of original sin, having committed no sin, having been completely blameless, a lamb spotless and blameless, this, my friends, is Christ taking you out of that law place and standing there for you as though he were you and indeed his entire church. Now he bears the full brunt of God's wrath and God will not hold back his wrath because it's part of who he is. He will 
display and demonstrate and execute justice? That's not the question. The question is, did Christ stand for you? Are you going to stand for yourself? And should you stand for yourself, to what degree or what would you present the holy God that maybe you could be made right with him? I would dare to say that it's a blasphemy to even suggest that you raising your hand down through the quarters of time was enough to make you saved. No, it must be a monergistic work of God in order for you to be saved. Why? Because as we covered before in predestination and election, you were spiritually unable to respond. You weren't able to raise your hand and you weren't able because you weren't willing and you weren't willing because it wasn't in your dead nature to do so. You must be as Christ said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is also why we should consider when Christ feared sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was he actually afraid of? Was he afraid of the Roman whip that could tear flesh off his back? Not, not to take anything away from that. I'm not saying it was pleasant. But we know that that's actually not true because if, you look, if you've ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've even read maybe one chapter, one page in that book, you'll see that all throughout history, men and women went happily singing praises to their heinous deaths for the glory of God, having been crucified for days only to end that crucifixion in a brutal burning on a cross to light the streets of Rome because they were so hated. And I'm not saying that, that Christ, again, was taking, it was, not, or was taking any kind of pleasure in what the Romans could do to him. No, what he feared, what was in the cup? What was in the cup that he feared in the Garden of Gethsemane? It was the wrath that was due to you. That's why he was so afraid, because he saw the infinite an immeasurable wrath and justice of God coming for him because of who we are and what we've done. That is the mystery of the gospel, that God could forgive us by punishing an innocent man. Acceptable payment. Now, when we consider what justification means, we we come to a word called propitiation. Now, if you look up the legal definition in Webster's Dictionary, propitiation is more of an appeasement, a swaying, a turn away, turning away of justice, but that's not the biblical definition. The biblical definition of propitiation is acceptable payment. In this case, the only acceptable payment for a holy God on that judge's seat, on that throne, would be something that is actually perfect and actually blameless, and it must be that way because when his wrath searches that out, it will find no flaw. That is the only way you can enter into the presence of God is to be made right, to be justified. For us now, it is a legal declaration. God views you through the lens of Christ. You will never, in God's eyes, be better than you are now. And that's going to come into repentance and to when I explain it, repentance. Here, in justification, we see solus Christus, sola gratia, Sola fide, fide, and sola dea gloria displayed for the five solas. And what I mean by that is Christ alone stood in your place, and we obtain the work of Christ by faith alone. That's it. We simply looked at what Christ did. 
That's sola fide. Or we, and, and he gives that to us freely. Well, that's what the word grace means, sola gratia. And the glory goes to that man standing in your place alone. Four of the five solas right there found in justification. It's pretty neat. So then Paul goes on to answer the question, Romans 3.29. Um, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's the answer to your question. How can God justify someone and something that is evil and not be evil himself? Make no mistake, good works are required. Perfect works are required, but it can't be our good works, not only because of our original state of sin, but because of our actual sin, okay? It's the good works of Jesus Christ, which is just like his, his sacrificial death were done for us in our place. Jesus Christ not only died for our sins, but through his life of perfect obedience to God's commandments, he fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. If you've ever read anything of the law, it's got a lot of requirements, okay, to be made right. 2 Timothy 4.8, the knowledge that our sins are forgiven and that God is pleased with us is every bit as much as he is with his own dear son, uh, comes from 2 Corinthians 5.21. It not only should quiet our conscience and create a, an immense sense of joy and well-being, but it should also provide a powerful motivation to live a life of gratitude before God, 2 Corinthians 1.3-7. Remember, Paul is speaking to a church that has just gone haywire because they're getting it all wrong. And he's like, no, no, it's Christ alone. And we remove all those things that hinder us from fellowship with him and his word. And that is what repentance actually is. We'll talk about that in a second. Faith that ties us to Christ and his work standing before God in our place is not something that God saw in your heart and then rewards you with a status of justified. To say that is to hold on to, maybe to some degree, a merit of your own. It really just doesn't add up. It doesn't line up with Scripture. And this view, unfortunately, is widely... As soon as you step out this door, you'll hear it. And you'll ask someone that actually professes to be a Christian, how do you know that you're saved? Well, I believe in Jesus, and I'm not that bad of a person. We often think of that ourselves. As a matter of fact, we often live that way ourselves. One of the worst things you can possibly think as a Christian is that after you sin, that you must make yourself right before God. How in the world do you think you can do that? That's not what repentance is. You will never be more right than you are right now before God. You will never be a better person by repentance. That's not what it's about. The doctrine of repentance is not a 180. And it, it drives me absolutely banana nuts when I hear somebody say, well, it's a turning around. But it really isn't. And let me use an analogy. As a pilot, we often use what's called an azimuth. Um, if I need to go on a heading of 360 to obtain my objective, but I'm actually going due east at 090 and I do a 180, where am I at? 
I'm due west at 270. I'm still going the wrong direction. It's not about a turning around. It's about a change of heart. But what does that actually look like? Repentance, again, does not help us become a better person. When you look at it in the sense of being made right and justification before God, repentance is removing those things that hinder us with fellowship with God and his word and indeed the things within us. And that's when Paul talks about the, more, the principle of mortification of sin. It's not just the outer things that are getting in your way. It's who you are as a person, the things that you hold on to, the things that you idolize, the things that you give into. Mortification then becomes about deadening those things within you that keep you and hinder you from fellowship with Christ and his word. That's all repentance really is. That is the principle of mortification. It's one of those things taught, I believe, in Ephesians, uh, or maybe Galatians. Sorry, I should have written that down. But that really sums up the doctrine of repentance and the doctrine of justification. I know that's a bit brief, just about 30 minutes, um, but I did kind of want to open it up to an open forum or questions. Does anybody have any questions or anything that they want to say? Any questions at all? If not, next week, uh, God willing, we will go over uh, faith, regeneration, and calling in the light of justification, the holiness of God, and predestination and election. But that's pretty much all I have. Tony, I'm just saying. Okay, please do. It outlines this exact doctrine from start to finish. And it's amazing. Actually, I will do that. You bring up a good point here. We've still got plenty of time. Sorry, I I did go kind of brief on this. Uh, Romans, why am I not there? It is Romans chapter 3. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. So the only thing I'll say is, I'll go back over. Again, the question is, really starts in Exodus, the, just the, the second book of the Bible. How can God be just and the justifier of wicked men? And it is answered in Romans chapter 3, verse 29 specifically. Um, it shows that righteousness at this present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The only way that God can be just is because of Christ crucified. That's the only way that he can look at you in love. That's the only way that he can justify you. All right, but thank you guys. That's it.